Right, let me pray and then we can uh, get into the word. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. God, to delight in your law. Um, God, often is prayed that prayer from Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your law. And today we begin to, to really look at your law and would pray that it would be refreshing to us. That you would help us, God, to, to see what you have. For us here in your word, God's spirit, we pray you come and enlighten hearts right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. It's the third book in the Bible. We're going to begin our exposition today, this, this wonderful book. And uh, just a caveat, I'm going to preach this book from the ESV. So just to kind of give you an alert to that as well. Um, this morning, I'm going to give you an overview of the book. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to actually begin verse by verse looking at it. Um, I, I've been asked about the pace of what we're going to do in through Leviticus, and we're going to go at least a chapter each week, and maybe two, sometimes three, maybe four chapters. We'll see how it goes. But I'm planning one week on each of the first five chapters. We just think about the, the theme of, of sacrifice. And I, I know that I'm excited to begin. This has been a while so I've been thinking about this, really praying about it. And uh, as I have uh, asked people over this past several months, uh, if I've, I've told them that I'm preaching Leviticus, I've had several different reactions. Um, I've had the reaction of the sigh of disappointment, like, oh. <laughs> like, that's encouraging to a pastor and a preacher, right? Uh, I've had uh, the, the, the okays of confusion. Okay... Now, this is going to be interesting. It's kind of the idea there. I've had the smiles of anticipation. <laughs> Not know what to say. I've had the, the wows of admiration. In fact, one of the things I do every week is I email out uh, pastors re- literally across the land that I know. Uh, I, I tell them what I'm preaching, so they'll pray for me, and they tell me what they're preaching, I, I pray for them. And I had one guy reply back and said, wow, I'm, I'm really admiring your courage for attempting to get through Leviticus, and he was excited to listen to the messages to see how I do. I've had some people say, well, I'm excited to hear what you're going to say, and I'm excited to hear what I'm going to say, because some things here are going to be some some gnarly traveling sometimes, if you know what I mean. Now, some, as I've told them, are going to preach through Leviticus, have professed their, their ignorance, like, I don't know. And uh, some have professed their love for Leviticus. I remember talking to one man, and he says, Oh, I just I love Leviticus. Now, maybe that's not your perspective, but one of the aims in preaching through Leviticus is that I, I hope by the end that Leviticus would be a book that you, you genuinely love. Now, you might have some, some books on uh, your short list of your favorite books in the Bible. Uh, say maybe Romans or Ephesians or maybe the Gospel of John. Well, I hope by the end of Leviticus that that Leviticus is on that short list. I've had one pastor friend of mine told me that um, uh, chapter one particular chapter of Leviticus is like his favorite chapter in all the Bible, and I'll tell you that story uh, when we when we get to it. My outline this morning is really really twofold. It's really pretty simple. Uh, first, I'm going to have some thoughts on Leviticus, just kind of general introductory thoughts um, as we think about it, addressing it. And then I'm going to have some thoughts on holiness, and there I'm going to get more into application for us this morning for, for my message. But one of my aims, I said earlier, was, was to get us to love Leviticus. There are many things here, by the way, that are very helpful for us in our Christian faith. It is in Leviticus that the whole concept of sacrifice is explained. Um, many places throughout the Bible, the understanding of sacrifice is assumed. But in Leviticus, it is explained. In other words, right, without Leviticus, our understanding of Jesus' death upon the cross would really be impossible. Because, yes, we would have the Savior who died for us, but we don't really understand why He died or why He needed to die. But with Leviticus, we'll help explain that. We'll give us an explanation about the cross. So we'd see and understand a redemption more fully. And what's there to love more than that? understand our redemption more, more fully. Furthermore, Leviticus is going to help us to understand priests. 
um, especially the high priest. And, and when you think about Jesus is our great high priest, Leviticus will, will give you the backdrop and the shadow of who the high priest really is and Jesus' role today and just say that it's precious. And the more we understand what took place back then, the more we will understand his role today. Well, I want you to love Leviticus. Another aim of my preaching is that Leviticus might not trip you up. Uh, I know I've had the experience, and I trust that probably many of you have had this experience as well, is that maybe it comes around January and you're ready to read through the whole Bible. You say, yes, I'm going to do that. And so you start in Genesis, and the creation account is wonderful, and it just moves right along until the Tower of Babel, and you should read about the flood and everything. And then Genesis 12 comes with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and the sacrifice of Isaac comes and Jacob and Esau quarreling together and that wonderful story of Joseph and you're flying by and then you get the plagues of of Egypt and those are spectacular and interesting and and riveting and and then you get to the second half of Exodus and it's a little harder because it talks about the tabernacle and how to erect it and how to build it here's this building that's not even in existence anymore and you're like okay well what does it okay but but your momentum kind of carries through and then in Leviticus um, things begin to slog down um, because it's a book filled with laws and archaic things like sacrifices and priests and festivals and skin diseases and discharges and issues of blood and like weird things and you're like, mm, I'm not sure where this happens to me. And often Leviticus claims its victims. What, what began with good intentions ends in failure somewhere in Leviticus. And it reminds me of... Uh, American Ninja Warrior. Now, um, you probably many of you know what, what that is. It's Steffi, David, and I have only been introduced to American Ninja Warrior in the past, just recent days. And so we've been, we've been watching this season a little bit. We've seen some of the finals. And basically, if you don't know what it is, it's a giant obstacle course competition where competitors are competing just to finish this course. And, and they have various obstacles from swinging ropes to cargo nets to giant rings to climb, and uh, many of these obstacles really test the upper body strength of uh, an individual. And as we were watching these, um, David turned to me and he says, Dad, why aren't you an American Ninja Warrior? <laughs> and, I, and I can do about three chin-ups on a great day right now, so I need to work a little bit more on that. But our kids have been doing ninja training because they genuinely want to be the very first American Ninja Warrior. But they have to be, how old do you have to be to compete, Stephanie? 20 or 21. We've looked it up and she can't compete yet. But they're crawling all over our walls. They're doing chin-ups every night. But one of the things with, with this is that whenever there's a competition, they have maybe six to eight obstacles. There's always one obstacle seemingly that, that gets them to slip up. Higher percentage than any other obstacle. And that's like Leviticus. right? They breach the first obstacle, breach the second obstacle, and the third obstacle claims whatever, half the victims who take the course. And that happens with Leviticus. And if you finish the entire Bible when they stumble in Leviticus. So I'm hoping that, that you'll come to see Leviticus and what the treasures of it is. That the so next time you read through it, maybe next January, it won't mess you up. You'll be able to get past it. But many neglect Leviticus altogether because it's too hard, too dry, and, and too dull. In fact, one man said of Leviticus that it is perhaps the most neglected of the neglected books of the Bible. Is the book of Leviticus. Now, one of the challenges of Leviticus, it's so foreign to us. I mean, it's written to a people some 3,000 years ago, describing practices that we don't see today. That we don't have. It's not even like we can say, oh, can we go see what that looks like? Can we investigate that? We don't. It's all just historical, what took place there. But I say this, that they seem strange because we don't live there. Anytime you travel to a foreign land, there are things that are strange. In a month and a half, I'm going to be traveling to Nepal and to India and doing some pastoral training over there with leadership resources. And I would say, India and Nepal are very different than the United States. The people look different. The people sound different. The customs are different. In fact, there are some things when you're in India and Nepal that you shouldn't do. Like, like for instance, uh, a man shouldn't touch a woman in public. I mean, not even shake hands, generally. Just men will hold hands with men in a totally non-sexual way. Women will hold hands with women. They'll kind of put their arms around each other just to say, hey, we're great friends. 
but not men and women. They just won't, won't touch. No public sign of affection um, in, in India. Uh, also, you, you never eat or greet or touch people with your left hand. Because kids, they normally don't use the toilet paper. They use their left hand. So their left hand is kind of dirty. And they eat with their hands, by the way. And so they always eat with their, their right hand, oftentimes. So you don't shake their left hand, all right? Boy Scouts would have a problem, right? Because they do their left hand to handshake, right, Caleb? Yeah, they, they'd have to change that if they went, went there. Okay, uh, also, it wouldn't be a good idea to bring bur- beef jerky into the nation, okay? Because, <clears throat> you know, of course, Hindus, cows are, are pretty... Uh, sacred to them. I thought about a good source of protein be brief jerky, but then we said no, and turkey jerky is like terrible, so I don't bring any jerky into the nation. But those are some things that you don't do when you go there. It may seem strange to us, but if you live there, none of those things are strange to the people in India and Nepal. And the same works with Leviticus. As we work our way through this book, we're going to find some things that are very strange to us, right? From sacrifices to priests to eating restrictions to Feasts and festivals they celebrate. It's just, just weird. And then there's some laws, like, like not reaping to the very edge of the field, or, or mix, don't mix fabric in your clothing, or right, don't, don't trim your beard, or don't cut the sides of your hair, of, of your head, or the hair on the side of your head. But I say this, none of this would have been strange to those in Israel. This was just the law of the land. This is the rule of life. This is the way that they lived. In fact, think about this now. Is that the laws and customs of Leviticus are what the people of the New Testament lived like. And so often we can just push our American way of life into the Scriptures or kind of understand some things, but not fully understand of how strange they, they might be. Right When Jesus came and touched the leper... That's like, <gasps> you don't touch a leper. Because we're going to read in Leviticus 13 and 14 all about just how you don't, you need to stay away. In Leviticus 11, I think they're called unclean. They need to shout out, unclean, unclean. As they shout by, as they walk by, and touching an unclean thing is an act of defilement. You'd never do that, but that was shocking for us. I mean, we don't... You know, maybe someone's sick in a hospital, maybe. You, you don't touch or you put a gown on. We see that maybe with the Ebola uh, crisis. You see maybe people with, um, you know, all these gowns and things. We, we, might, we might touch, but for the most part, people aren't off, uh, off boundaries. But back then, those with the, um, leprosy were. Or the women touched with blood, with blood touched Jesus. That was a big thing. That she would reach out and touch Him would have shocked the Jews of Jesus' day. Or, think about this, when Paul wrote in Romans 10.4, this is another shocker, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I mean, to them, they lived according to this law. And then to say that Christ is the end of the law, that has some shades of meaning. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the telos of it. But in some regard, he's, he finishes the law. He finished, it's done. Or, think about what Paul says when he writes... In Ephesians 2, about how the cross brought the unclean Gentiles near to the Jews to make them one new man. Catch this. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This would have been shocking. What the law? I mean, I mean that, that's almost like us saying, by doing away with the Supreme Court... We'd be like, no, you can't do away with the Supreme Court. How are we going to get all of our problems and laws solved but to have one final authority in our land? And they had the law. And they said abolished it, is what Paul says. And the Jew couldn't imagine abolishing anything like that. And so I think that we can just easily miss the impact of these words because we don't understand Leviticus well enough. And in fact, these kind of things about abolishing the law... And Stephen bringing that to the Jewish people is what eventually killed him because he was saying words like that. And Peter, remember Peter's mighty struggle in Acts chapter 10 about eating this food. He says, no, no, I've never eaten it because he was following the laws of Leviticus 11. And when we see Leviticus 11 and understand it, then we'll see and understand just how hard that was for Peter to transgress this law, which is so dominant in their culture, which we know nothing about. So, Let's get back into the New Testament times. 
by studying Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is quoted in the New Testament more than 15 times. So you say, okay, well, 15 times, that's not a lot. Well, there are only five other books of the Bible that are quoted more in the New Testament than the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus comes in sixth place. Psalms first, Isaiah second. I think then it's Genesis and then Exodus and Deuteronomy run a, a quick fifth and then Leviticus is shortly after them. So it, it's, pretty, it's pretty prominent. In fact, when Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment, He quotes from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the greatest commandments of all the Scriptures found in Leviticus. Furthermore, the hundreds of references to the law in the New Testament. And I think every time that the law is mentioned, there's, there's a big dominance of Leviticus in their minds. So you, just, you think about even understanding the New Testament. Leviticus is important to all this. So these next few months we travel through Leviticus. My hope is that your appreciation and love for Christ will grow. Your understanding of what's happening and take place in the, the New Testament will take effect. Now, before actually even we get to my application thoughts on uh, holiness, I, I want us to, to really think about the difficulty in applying Leviticus. And, and I want to put before you a picture that um, should be true throughout all your time in Leviticus, whether it's in your small groups. Right? Keep this in mind because we ask these questions uh, about, about a text, about I'm preaching Leviticus 1 next week. And Darren, you have a small group tonight? And if you want to go to the McDowell's, just talk to Ryan, small group up there tonight, potentially. And, uh, or Friday night, Phil, as you lead that, as you ask these questions, I want you to keep this picture in mind. Okay, first of all, we have Leviticus right there at the top. Can you click that for me, please, Chuck? <clears throat> oh, that's not what I wanted. I guess that's what it is. That's what it is. I was going to grow this thing and it was going to build. Okay, so for, for, pretend that it's all like all you see is Leviticus on the top. Okay, I don't know why this didn't work, Tina, but we'll, we'll work on this. Leviticus is right there on the top. Okay, and Leviticus is written to Israel some 3,000 years ago. It's written to them. Okay. It is not written to us at Rock Valley Bible Church. And that is huge to understand. Because if you take the Bible and just say, okay, it's written to me, you're going to run into all sorts of problems in how to interpret the book of, of Leviticus. It's not written to you. In fact, none of the Bible is written to you. It's written for you. And by the way, this is one of the things that we teach in um, pastoral training in Nepal and India. It's called traveling instructions. It was written to Israel some 3,000 years ago. So don't take the path from Leviticus to us. First, understand that Leviticus-Israel trajectory and what it meant for them. And then, by way of application, come by way of that line to us at Rock Valley Bible Church. And you've got to do that. Okay? And in fact, in the five questions that we ask, in our small groups, first question is, what's the big idea? Second question, how would the original hearers hear it? That's that line over there. How would Israel hear and understand what was written? How would they interpret it? How would they apply it? That's the second question we'd ask. And then, with Israel, then you figure out us. But, since they lived... And by the way, you do this with every book of the Bible. That's Ephesians or Romans. So say, take Ephesians, written to the churches. Right? Paul wrote it to the Ephesians or a circular letter or other churches, but he wrote it to them. Understand that link first and what's going on there and then apply it to us. Now, since they're a New Testament church, often the application comes just straight to us, almost as if he speaks to us because he's speaking to a church. But in Leviticus, things are a little more complicated because even it is before the cross. And so when you think about, okay, from Israel, let's take it to us. There are things that... Jesus will filter out at the cross that the applicant is going to stop there at the cross. Like I've just given up, up three examples up there about the, uh, the sacrifices. The sacrifices stopped at the cross because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So though Israel needed a sacrifice, we don't. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled that. We don't need another sacrifice. You read Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 speaks about by one sacrifice for all time, he has sanctified those who believe in him. 
It's by one sacrifice. So Christ did that. Also, the priests. There's no longer need for priests anymore. So the former priests, Hebrews 7, I think it's verse 26, says, 23, exist in greater numbers because they are prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood continually. And you don't need another priest because you have the one priest who is there forever. We don't need Old Testament priests anymore. So Jesus filtered that out as, as well. Eating laws. You can read that story in Mark where Jesus says in Mark 7, there's nothing outside a man that going into him defiles him, but the things come out of a person defiles him. Thereby, Mark adds, he declared all foods clean. And you can even see Acts chapter 10 when he's talking about cleanly, clean eating um, these unclean foods. And Peter says, yes, kill and eat. It's okay to eat now. So there's some, some food laws that stop there. And so that's kind of a principle. And so there'll be some other things that, that stop there at the cross. But there are some things that follow straight through that are applicable, as applicable to us today as they were back then. Like that verse I put there. And I put the New Testament reference, 1 Peter 1.16, because Peter's writing to the churches. He says... Quoting from the Old Testament, you shall be holy for I am holy. That comes straight through. That's a principle that goes right through the cross. Jesus would call us to live exactly the same way uh, today as he did before. Like, for instance, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That comes straight through the cross to us. So the, the difficulty is then trying to understand what's filtered out. What's not. So understand first that line to them and then understand what's filtered out. Okay, you got that picture in your mind? Right, those of you small groups, kind of grab that and keep that there. And keep that also as I'm preaching through um, to understand that. Well, this phrase here, you shall be holy for I am holy, is so applicable that it's repeated three times in the book of Leviticus. So, if you have your Bibles, open up to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. I just want to show it to you there. Leviticus 11:44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. You should be holy. And even in the second part of the verse says some of these things. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. We'll talk about that when we get to Leviticus 11. But the first part, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Or look over at Leviticus 19, verse 1. The same idea. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy, therefore we should be holy. It occurs another time. Chapter 20, verse 26. You can turn over there. It says, You shall be holy to Me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. In fact, Leviticus is really all about holiness. It's all about approaching a holy God. And in order to approach a holy God, we need to be holy to approach Him. In fact, the title of the book Leviticus it is named after the Levites, who were those in charge of the tabernacle and in charge of worship of the Lord, in charge of bringing people to the Lord in worship. So let's just transition now. I've given you thoughts on Leviticus. Let's, let's go to thoughts on holiness. This word holy occurs some 80 times in the book of Leviticus. Many things are spoken of in Leviticus holy. Holy offerings. A holy crown, a holy coat, a holy sanctuary, a holy priest, a holy gift. The holy place, holy food, holy garments, God's holy name, holy convocations, the holy land. Just holy is a, is, a, is a word that comes here often. You might say, well, what does it mean to be holy? Well, fundamentally, it has this idea of, of being separate, being distinct, uh, being different. But being different, not in a, a strange way, like, you know, I, I know I'm different. Okay, <laughs> But not being different in a strange way, maybe like me, okay? But being different in a, a holy and pure way. So, say like the difference between a, a surgeon and a maintenance worker at a hospital. 
The surgeon is the Holy One who's been cleansed and he's set apart in the operating room where the maintenance worker is dealing with the boiler making sure that works okay. But it's also with this idea of righteous and pure and holy. You can see the idea of separation right there in verse 26 of chapter 20. You shall be holy to me for I, the Lord your God, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. See, he's, he's separating them. He's making them different. He's making them distinct. That's what it means to be holy. And, and there is this connection between God's holiness and our call to be holy. And, and A.W. Tozer does a great job of describing what it means that God is, is holy in his great book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. Let, let me just quote it. He says this, Holy is the way that God is. To be holy... He does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than He is. Neither the writer nor the reader is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds, even to understand the holiness of God. In other words, understand how distinct and how different and how majestic and pure and righteous God is. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing of the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire His wisdom, but His holiness he cannot imagine. Just God is, is so distinct and so pure and different than us, it's difficult even to understand. But when people encounter the holiness of God, they know. Uh, you remember Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah encountered the, the Lord seated upon the throne and the seraphim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. You remember what happened to him? He was broken and undone. He was ruined, as the King James Version says. Or like Ezekiel, when he saw a similar vision of God, he fell on his face, Ezekiel 1.28. Or when Peter got a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus, even he fell down at his knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Always, you encounter God, you encounter His holiness, and it's instantly brokenness, depart from me. You'd be like Martin Luther who was trained a Catholic priest. And on the day in which he was to utter the words of the Mass, the very first time, it's like his ordination day, where he's been training for, for years. I don't know how old he was, 25, 28, something. He's there standing. His dad is in the, in the congregation. He's about to transubstantiate the, the bread, which is a false doctrine, by the way. But, but just call God down and bring the substance here. He was at the altar and he froze and he trembled. And he couldn't finish the Mass. It, it, it would be like me just encountering God and then just being dumbstruck. And after a few moments, minutes maybe, sitting down and like not finishing our service today. Because here's what Martin Luther, or yeah, what Martin Luther said. He said, in that moment, he was thinking, who am I? that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty. Angels surround Him. And his nod, at His nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. Just struck by the holiness of God. That's why he was dumbfounded. He was calling God to act at that moment as he believed would take place in the Mass. But, but I say, Martin Luther's experience of God, if you've truly come to know God, you've experienced that as well, of just seeing God for who He is, a glimpse of God and being broken and on your knees. That's why the proverb says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Like The, the very first thing you should do, the very first step of wisdom is to be utterly fearful of the holy, awesome God that we serve. Because seeing Him like that puts us in our sin and brokenness. We must all approach God like the, the tax collector who stood far off and beat his breast 
asked and said, not worthy to look up. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's how we come to God. We come to God like Isaiah came to God, like Ezekiel, like Peter on the knees before the Lord. And Leviticus is all about coming to the Lord. It's all about the holiness of God. It's all about our holiness that we need to come to God. We need sacrifices. We need priests. We need to walk in a, in a righteous way, right? We need to have food with that we eat. We need to wear our clothing the right way. We need to um, live in our, our society the right way in order to come to God. And Leviticus is all about worship. That's why the sacrifices are explained in chapters 1 through 7 about how they should be offered. Because to come to a holy, pure God, our sins have to be forgiven. And in order for our sins to be forgiven, we need a blood sacrifice. And then in chapters 8-10 through 10 of Leviticus, we're going to deal with the, the needs for priests to be holy. Because not only do we need a sacrifice to be holy, we need to have a holy man represent us before God. We need to have a, a holy priest. And you can read the qualifications for priests. They need to be holy, holy men. We'll read seven days of sacrifice just to ordain them, to get them ready. And rules and regulations about how to walk because we need to be a pure people coming before God. Chapters 11 through 27. Right? God's establishing a law to set them apart and distinct so that they might, might come to Him in worship. In fact, this whole idea about being clean and unclean, that occurs more often in Leviticus than does this idea of holiness. Clean and unclean. I forget how many times. Holiness is mentioned some 80 times. I think it's maybe up to 200 times. Clean and unclean concept comes in. Because God desires a clean nation. He desires a holy people. Now, think about how timely this was when Leviticus was written. They came out of the, the land of Egypt, having lived there for more than 400 years. I think they learned quite a few things from the Egyptian culture. The Egyptian gods. But they need to be reminded again of what the one true God is and what He requires. In fact, look back at verse 22. We're in 20. Let's look back at verse 22. It says, therefore, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, that you may not walk in the customs of the nation Israel that I'm driving you out before you or the nations which you're going into, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. There it is, made you different, made you distinct, and you need to learn about what your God is like rather than the gods of Egypt, rather than the gods where you're going to go and conquer. You need to be different. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't walk like the Egyptians, okay? Walk like an Israelite. Clothe yourself differently. Eat differently. Have different morals. Have your sexual ethics be different. Worship is to be different. Celebrate these holidays and festivals that are yours, O oh Jewish people, not those that are part of the nations around you. Care about being clean before the Lord. And in the broadest application, really, the, the book of Hebrews then comes really straight to us that we are to be a holy people. To worship God, you need to be holy. Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He was clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You know, in recent days, um, Yvonne has come to know a woman who leads worship in another church in town. And, um, you know, she talked for her a bit. Yvonne has discovered some things about her. Primarily, she's discovered that stood out mostly is that this woman has a dirty mouth. Now, it's wrong for me to say that profanity freely flows from her mouth, but... Maybe every time you've been in her presence, you've heard some swearing. Not maybe not. Every time you've been in her presence, you've heard some swearing. Enough. In fact, she just told me last night of how she took God's name in vain like it was nothing. Um, now, I think about that. I think about, okay, so when she's standing up there before a congregation leading in music like Ryan does, I don't, I don't, I don't think she's saying those kind of things. Probably not. She's probably saying high and lofty and, and exalted things and closing her eyes and trying to get people to 
sing and, and worship to the Lord. Probably words are probably holy sounding. But you, you, out of the same spring ought not to come, you know, bitter and sweet water. James three talks about that. That, that. That's not the way to be God. We're not playing a game on Sunday morning. We're not playing a game of worship with God. Our lives ought to be wholly devoted to God. And her mouth betrays her. That's not where she is. See, God wants us to seek Him with all of His heart, all of our hearts, for all of our days, not just Sunday morning when it's time to put on the show. And shame to all of us who've come here hypocritically putting on a show. We may fool other people. In fact, the longer I pastor, the more I see how people have fooled me as, as things come out later in later years about, ah, oh, I didn't know that. Ah, oh, if I'd have known that. And fooled. People, you fool others, but you're not going to fear the Lord. God knows when we put on a show. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so my, my prayer and hope for studying Leviticus is, next few months is that it would make us better worshipers of God because we understand His purity and, and walk in holiness throughout our weeks. That there's no show on Sundays when we gather together. There's no show in our small groups, but we're real. Because we need to be holy before the Lord. You say, how can you be holy? Well, again, A.W. Tozer just puts it really well. God is holy with an absolute holiness that knows no degrees and He cannot impart His holiness to His creatures. But there is a relative and contingent holiness which He shares with angels and seraphim in heaven and with redeemed men on earth as their preparation for heaven. So in other words, God is so holy, He can't give us His holiness, but He can give us some or partial or a portion of it. It says the holiness God can and impart to His children. He shares it with them by imputation and by impartation. Because He made it available to them through the blood of a lamb, He requires it of them. To Israel first and later to His church, God spoke saying, Be ye holy for I am holy. He did not say, Be ye holy as I am holy. For that would be to demand of us an absolute holiness Something that belongs to God alone. You can't be holy for I am holy, not be holy as I am holy. Because God is so much greater in His holiness than we ever will be. But we need to mimic Him and mock Him and be like our righteous Father. We need to be perfect as our Father is perfect. Matthew 5:48. But see, there's this holiness that God gives us. And first of all, He imputes a holiness to us. That's Second uh, Corinthians 5:21. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That, that In other words, that we believe in Him, His righteousness becomes ours imputed, not because we have it, but because He gives it, He considers it. Because He got our sin on the cross. But beyond the imputed righteousness, there's another righteousness that God works in us. That's commonly called the, the fruit of God in us. Galatians 5, 22-23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and goodness, and self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what God works in our lives. God creates in His people a fruit of righteousness. And when God saves us from sin, He saves us with a purpose. He saves us to be holy. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That was written to the church. 1 Peter 2.9 Written not to Israel, well, it was quoting from Israel, but quoting the church, to the church. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Like Israel of old, the church, we are called to be set apart for God. J.C. Ryle said it long ago, we must be holy because... This is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He doesn't merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. As Charles Wesley says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. The forgiven sin that's been canceled. That power, now we can walk in righteousness. We don't need to be slaves to sin. Paul says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification, you abstain from sexual immorality. He says a walk in a righteous way. That's God's will for our lives. And even in 1 Thessalonians 3, 
Right, though this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is the same word for holiness. You can say this, this is the will of God for your life, your holiness, your purity, your righteousness. God's will for your life is that you live a righteous and pure life. You know, and that's the path for all of us. That's not just the path for the pastor or the elders or other leaders. This is the path for all of us. It's not optional. It says, you shall be holy. That is, everyone shall be holy. You can't say about holiness, well, it's all fine and well, living righteous thing, right? Not, that, Steve, you're into that? Okay, good for you, Steve. But you know what? I'm just, I'm just not, not into that so much. I just, it's, it's good for you and I, it's not for me. That's, that's not what it's like. It's, it's, it's for all of us. So, like, I think about amusement parks. Amusement parks are not for me, alright? When I was younger, yes. I'm old now, okay? No. So last Phil, right? I, I, no. no. Amusement parks. Um, now, I know I'm different than many people. Some love a day at amusement parks. I mean, they, the riding the roller coasters and the thrill of going up and down and doing the bumper cars and eating the corn dogs and... You know, and having the thrill of the upside down and the spinning round and round and round and round and round. They get out and they're like, hey, let's do it again. <laughs> I know there, there are people like that, okay, but for me, it's, it's awful. I, I come home from amusement park and I, I come home with a headache. <laughs> okay, there you go. All right, good, good job. Your fist pump. <laughs> Even the merry-go-round is too much for me, right? In fact, last time I was there on the merry-go-round, I was doing the, the ballerina thing, you know, like, like this, just so that my, my head, I could get off of there without going, whoa. All right? It's just, it's just too much for me. In fact, it's so bad. In recent days, we, I, I'm not sure how long. It's been five years maybe since we've been to Marist Great America. I'm not sure. But even walking into the place and hearing the music play, I'm like, oh, my head hurts, and oh, I'm dizzy, and this is awful. And I, last time I went, I remember I took some extra strength Excedrin just to catch it at the pass, and I, it still was bad. So I, that's not for me. But, you know, I think about amusement parks, it is for you. Wonderful. Have at it. Great. Go. I'm going to be the first to, I don't have anything intrinsically against amusement parks and those rides. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I know, I know there are people who are into like roller coasters. In fact, SR has a friend who, who just wants in his life to, to be a roller coaster designer. He's building one in his backyard. He goes on all of them that he can. He tries to be the first in line to be the first car, the first one in line. Well, some people have the same attitude when it comes to personal holiness and living a life of righteousness. Well, it's good for you that you're pursuing hard after God, but it's just not for me. I mean, I can just show up on Sundays. That's okay for me. But I really like how you're pursuing God. Or, it's good for you. You read your Bible every day. But it's, you know, that's, that's not really my thing. I'm not a very good reader. I read the sports page every day. But I'm not a very good reader. But that Bible's, that's for you. That's, that's good. Or it's good for you. You're devoted to prayer, but you know what? That's that's just that's just my thing. I just don't have time. I don't have a place. I can't. I can't. I'm just not that devoted. I'm glad you are. It's it's good for you. You're committed to serve the people of the church. That's wonderful, and I applaud that. But you know what? It's it's not. For, I got I've got other friends, my friends at work or my friends from high school. I've got that. I need to spend time with them. Or, it's good for you, you've made righteous decisions according to your, your lifestyle. And you, you, you've made those decisions to pursue God in these holy and righteous ways. It's good for you. It's just, it's just not for me. I'm just not interested in those things. Or, it's good for you, you've, you've disciplined your life for the sake of purity. That's, that's wonderful. I, I, I applaud you for that. It's just, you know, it's not for me. I just, it's not that important. I'm not a disciplined person. Listen, in holiness, we're all in the game. This is something that's required of all of us. You can't just say, oh, that's good for someone. That's not for me. No, this is for you. You're, I mean, see, it's, it's one thing, like, I love football. I, I can't understand NASCAR, okay? But I can choose, right? I like pool, right? But I don't even know how to play cribbage, right? Played one time, a little bit, but... You get your interest, okay? 
And it's okay. Other people like NASCAR, but they don't like or they like this or that. And that's okay. But when it comes to holiness and purity and righteousness, you all must be interested. You all must be in the game. And it must be something that you pursue. Because every single one of us is called to be holy. And, and the book of Leviticus is going to bring us back again and again and again and again to these themes. It's all about how to live a righteous and holy life. And, and my prayer in preaching through this book is that God would do a work in us to purify us. Give us a passion for Him and seek Him with all of our hearts. You know, maybe there are issues in your life that you say, you know what? I need to pursue God in greater ways in these areas. I need to drop this area. I need to make God the passion of my life. Because you think about it. It'd be one thing if we stood before God and he said, well, did you like NASCAR? Well, if you like NASCAR, right, you're, you're into heaven. You're like, NASCAR. But what does God say? Did you know me? Did you believe me? Did you trust in me? Did you love me? That's the core essence of being a Christian is to believe God and then from there flows everything, our, our love and our hope and our joy. Did you find your joy in me? It, see, it's all about God. It's all about pursuing Him. And the only way you can pursue a holy God is to be holy yourself and righteous. And I just say this, you will find your greatest joy when you pursue holiness. All passions of the flesh are short-lived. Your sports teams will lose sometime, eventually. Your toys will break. Your vacation will be over. Your technological gadgets soon be obsolete. Just wait till the iPhone 12 comes out. <laughs> iPhone 6 is going to look pretty silly. Age will diminish your beauty. Age will diminish your strength. But a life devoted to the Lord will find joy forever. That's the heart behind what he's saying. Bodily training is of some value. May help you to be American Ninja Warrior. That's great. But godliness is of value in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. See, godliness is, is good now and it, it's good to come. And I know in my life, when I make righteous choices, it reflects then upon my heart to give me more joy in my heart than if I make an unrighteous choice. That's how it works. We just need to believe that and experience that enough that you're so convinced of that that that's the path that you choose because you know it's going to lead to your greatest joy. And I just say this. Never underestimate what God will do with the holy people. Never underestimate. I remember years ago at Kishwaukee Bible Church when I had the opportunity to preach. Um, I, I didn't have many opportunities back then. This is long before I was a pastor, um, before I was devoted to work full time. Um, I can't remember my text, okay? but I remember preaching on the Shema. Here is where the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I remember on that day when I preached it that I had a high school friend and his wife come and they sat back there in the, in the back, Jared, right like about where you are, right? Visitors tend to sit way in the back so they can scope it out. And I remember they, they came and uh, they'd been attending another evangelical church in town. I'd call it a, even a good church. But there was something different that she sensed about the family of the believers there, which is very much like our family of believers here, right? where on Brewster's you had maybe 25 people, 30 people out, 21 people out just helping us, wonderful. I wasn't there, but I'm glad you all were just helping and serving. That's, that's an indication of what God does in terms of serving people, okay? the, the, the knowledge of the Word was there at Kishwaukee Bible Church. And her comment was this, is that the people there were really strange. She kind of looked around that Sunday, but attractive. Because people were really interested in God and really pursuing God and having a passion for God. And eventually she came and really changed her life. She's baptized at Kishwaukee Bible Church. Um, we just saw her recently at a, a wedding and she just thanked us for how much we helped with her um, raising her children and um, just a different perspective where we just gave him a perspective that children are joy. And she kind of got to the point where children are like, oh, they're a pain in the neck because they're disobedient. And disobedient children are a pain in the neck, okay? But obedient children, disciplined rightly, are a delight and a joy. And I, we don't even remember teaching or talking about that, but just kind of that's where we are. And she said that changed so much and her kids are doing wonderfully well. Um, 
off doing college projects over the summertime, marrying a strong believer. And but what was it that changed her? She changed because of being around a holy people. I know that was my testimony as well. I mean, I grew up for church in year, for years, but it was being around a holy people who loved God and loved His Word and loved talking about it that changed my life. I know Yvonne's testimony is exactly the same. Is it the, the, the testimony when there's a body of people that are walking in holiness and righteousness, that are loving God and pursuing God and following hard after Him and seeking to make righteous choices with their life, that can have a much bigger impact than maybe you ever can imagine possible. And, and I'm just praying that our time in Leviticus would have a similar effect upon us to create a strange and different people. Oh, not, not because we're offensive or we dress strange or have such strange customs or because we talk funny, but more because we have a genuine love for the Lord, because we genuinely hate our sin and because we're all in and trusting our Savior for our whole lives and for beyond. That's what I'm hoping that Leviticus will do for us. And next week we'll jump into chapter 1. You won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray for our holiness and purity and righteousness. God, we, we just need much help and strength. I pray that You, by Your Spirit, would work in us. God, break the power of our canceled sin. God, give us holy affections and desires to walk not after the ways of the flesh, but to walk after the ways of the Spirit. Not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit, O oh God. That we might sing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. That we would be those who worship You in good times and bad. I thank You for the, the service last week when um, God, a good handful of us stood up and spoke of the trials we've been going through and yet Your goodness through it. Just a resolve to praise You in good times and bad, knowing that You are on the throne. As we sing, You are God alone. Oh, Father, so I pray that You would work in us. And by Your grace, I pray that You would use Leviticus uh, in these days and months to come. Lord, I pray that You'd help me just to figure out and dissect Your Word and to bring it to us in an appropriate way. Then I pray that it would land in all of our hearts, that we would see how holy You are and how much You desire purity and righteousness, and we would walk in that way, to create among us, God, a holy, happy people that is attracted, that, that the world is attracted to because we're different and they want the happiness. And so they get the holiness through Jesus. God, so help us in these things, God. Strengthen us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.